Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Off the Shelf, Revolutionary Readings in Times of Crisis. I am your host, Dr. Augustus Wood, and I'm proud to be sponsored by the Humanities Research Institute at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And of course, this is the number one podcast that brings you the political education of Black scholars, activists, and organizers to talk about the intellectual traditions the types of readings, books, and also figures that we should be following as we learn to intervene in these multiple social crises that are plaguing Black America, the African-American world at large, and also just the struggles that we as people have going into, of course, 2021-2022. And I am really, really excited to be joined by, by one of my favorite brothers who is out here doing a lot of extensive work on the struggle for Black liberation as a scholar and as an organizer. I'm here with Brother Edward Onachi, one of the, one, one of the premier scholars right now. And you, we typically would use the word emerging, but because this brother has been doing it for so long now, I don't know if this, I don't know if this, I don't know if it's right to say emerging since he's been doing it, but I would say that we have to call it emerging because one of the best books out on struggle right now that we're going to detail during this discussion has come out free to land. And so I just want to say first, welcome, Brother Onachi, for doing this. Thanks so much, man. I'm really glad to be here and I'm happy to be on this show in particular because you're one of my favorite brothers also doing it everything that I think we agree scholars should be doing as activists. Most definitely. So to let our listeners know who Brother Onichi is, he's an associate professor of history in African-American and Africana studies at Ursinus College. His book, Free the Land, The Republic of New Africa and the Pursuit of a Black Nation State was released Last year in 2020, with the University of North Carolina Press, it is the first full history of the new African independence movement, which we're going to talk about in detail in a second. When he's not doing all this amazing work, <laughs> which is a lot that he's doing, he's also a DJ and producer. So he's definitely into the culture as well. And he's a, he's a fellow organizing member of the Malcolm X grassroots movement. And so, again, we want to thank you for doing this off the shelf, especially in this second season. We ventured out to follow a lot of the a lot of uh, African-American scholars who are out looking at how to conceptualize a vision for black liberation. And so I think it's perfect that you're here for that because your book, Free the Land, particularly the idea of a new African independence movement. I think that kind of, I think that kind of foregrounds a lot of what we're going to talk about. And before we even get into you as a scholar and the works that inspired you, can you talk a little bit about the new African independence movement and what it means? Because we always want to make sure our listeners know that uh, intellectually there is a vision at the heart of struggle. So so tell, tell, talk to us about the new African independence movement. Yeah, absolutely. So the new African independence movement is 
a movement that has been ongoing since at least 1968 with the explicit goals of creating an independent black nation state, taking the states of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, and Georgia, and governing them for and by black or new African people. And in addition to that goal of landed independence, it, which, which I should say land is understood as part of a reparations agreement, uh, the other part of that reparations agreement is to get the finances, the back pay, as some folks would say, right, <laughs> for over 400 years of enslavement, uh, uh, plus the even after enslavement, the continued exploitation, physical and psychological abuse, mass incarceration. I mean, come on, we could talk about the drug wars, the CIA, we could talk about what's happening with our folks at the border right now yeah. being sent back to Haiti, how the U.S. is engaging with Nicaragua, which has a significant African descended population, right? So, yeah. so I, I'm going off a little bit, but this is a this movement, this attempt to get land and independence plus financial reparations understands itself as part of this broader system of oppression that places African and African descended people at the very bottom of, of this global structure in terms of financial resources, ability to govern oneself and the ability to even control the resources, right? From food to minerals, et cetera. And, and so, you know, the folks who started it argued that and continue to argue that if new Africans get, achieve their goals and get their liberation, it would help all these other folks get their liberation as well. So that, that's kind of the, the big picture of the movement. Exactly. And again, I, I, I love your emphasis on resources because for those that are followers of this podcast, one of the things I often emphasize in relation to our conceptualization of liberation for black struggle, one of the key components have to be resources, a, re, a redistribution, the idea of what you just mm -hmm. mentioned, the control of resources, power analysis is a major element of understanding Black struggle and liberation. And that's one of the things that I appreciate the most about the new African independence movement is that it places a primary, primary focus on how resources determine the power of groups, humanity, societies, whatever you want to say it. And so let's dig into that idea a bit because for us to get to that point in understanding agency and resources, there had to have been some type of a dialectical recognition of how the state operates on racial oppression. So there was, there's always been an intellectual grounding in this movement and also in how you chose to become a part of the movement. So can you tell us a little bit about your intellectual inspirations in, in the sense of what were you reading or what kind of scholars were you reading that really helped you conceptualize your framework for Black liberation and getting into the new African independence movement, MXGM, et cetera? So I'm going to expand your question a little bit because, as you said, I'm, I'm also into music and things of that nature. And actually, the first ones 
were were rappers. Okay, I mean, listening to Poor Righteous Teachers, yes, Wu Tang Clan to the to the extent that they have that type of analysis, Lauren Hill and the Fugees, you know, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. and, and and learning concepts, right? I remember Talib Kweli back in must have been 97, 98 had this line supplying the demand it's all capitalism right and and what he's talking about is how the drug trade entices and poor and oppressed young black men to sell poison to their people is like people don't sell cracks they like to see don't sell cracks they like to see black smoke they sell crack because they broke right exactly. and, and so it it helped those types of things helped me start to reframe what I have been taught up to that point. I'm 16, 17 at this point. Help me reframe because I'm told people do drugs because they're morally de- deficient. They do drugs because they don't know how to deal with with life. And and they deal drugs because they're evil. Right. And of course, this is I'm, I'm not going all the details about the Clinton era and all that's an environment. Yeah, we, we, we're all babies <laughs> of the dare program. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so listening to music and reading things like the autobiography of Malcolm X and novels such as Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye helped me realize that I had been taught to, you know, be a quote unquote Negro and think like one. And, and by saying that, I mean, I had fully accepted the foundational premise of white supremacy, which is that there's something wrong with you people, right? And listening to these things, reading these things helped me say, actually, it's not us, it's the system. And it's the people who control and maintain the system of oppression in order to, you know, maintain power and control and to get rich. And so from there, I started to say, okay, well, I need to do some research. As I'm researching the Black Panther Party, I also started to research African liberation movements and and developed the fascination with the Kenya's Land and Freedom Party, what we commonly know as the Mau Mau. Also started to learn about Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, learned about the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. They, They basically snuffed him out before he could even really get going. And, and, you know, mentioning these individuals, but recognizing that they represent thinking and movements that were taking place in the 50s and 60s and the struggles and that they represented struggles against Western imperialism, in particular, the French, the British, the Belgians. Um, and, and of course, you know, I learned about more later, but but developing that fascination made me, I think, receptive to, to thinking about where is the land for Black people? You know, like Marcus Garvey yeah. used to say, where is the Black man's president? Where is his army? Where is his land? And, and you know, so the, the wheels started turning. And the thing that really did it for me was reading Imario Bedelli's Foundations of the Black Nation, where I was able to see Okay, I've been I've been reading this name Republic of New Africa in a couple places. Now I'm starting to get the ideological content that helps me make sense of it, so I can start to move beyond the okay, it's just something that was happening to what they actually tried to do that to. Okay, some of these ideas make a lot of sense. Yeah, and, and I would just I guess finish this by saying later on, much later, I read 
Sadia Hartman's Lose Your Mother. Yes. And one of the things that she produces some analysis about and raises questions about critical questions is, you know, what does it mean to be state a stateless people? What does it mean to have no homeland? Because you have that disconnection that you're from the land that your ancestors were on, and you don't you don't even know that those are your people now, and the land where your stolen selfhood was taken to, which is also stolen, you're also dispossessed of regularly at the same time as you're, you're dispossessed of your body. And so, you know, these things, again, it just, these ideas started to combine for me and it really made it make sense at that level of, okay, you know, at, at the very least, we should be asking some of those questions and we should be trying to resolve them and not just ignore them. I think that's a great way to really position that the argument really is, is not so much about that there is something, there is a criticism out there at a, at a, at a kind of a, at a national level. But I think what you said is very important is that there is a, there is a large segment of people who think that they are engaged in struggle, who seek to push these questions of land on the periphery that they believe that a bureaucratic structure is more so important to resolving the crisis of racism in America versus the resource question, the land question, particularly when you have so many more. And again, something I study is gentrification. Mm -hmm. And we, as we know, gentrification really has always been about more exploitation via land, Yep. locational advantage and a restriction of movement yep. for black people in urban spaces, the black working classes. And so when you have all these elements rolled together in relation to the fact that land is being neglected or being pushed to the periphery in this current moment of black struggle or trying to envision liberation, what are your thoughts about that particular, for lack of a better term, crisis? In that the fact that land is not, not only is land not being talked about in the reparations discussions or in the moment discussions for the protests, et cetera, but that land is often being told that you should not be talking about it, that you should be, that they, there are other things that are more important than land for Black people. And based on your research into freedom land and your work on the ground, that's something that we cannot afford to no longer neglect, yeah. correct? Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Just, I guess, one response that I typically have for people who may bring those sentiments to the table is tell that to Fannie Lou Hamer, that land mm -hmm. doesn't matter, right? Because, you know, we're taught very specific things about some of these folks who are valorized, who we valorize and who are valorized by people who hate us. And when we start to get into what they actually were doing, right? And, and I, I, one of my favorite books is Monica White's Freedom Farmers, right? Oh, yeah. And she also has an essay that I'd like to assign that talks specifically about Fannie Lou Hamer and um, the work that she was doing in Mississippi around land. And the whole point is, if you don't control your resources, someone else controls you. 
They will starve you to get you to comply. They will shoot you to get you to comply. They will evict you to uh, evict. Hold up. Evict you to get you to comply. Interesting that we would say that in September 2021 when massive evictions are taking place. And the main topic that the the folks who control a lot of the money resources want to say is we need to get more people back to work. Right. (laughs) And, And so and so the lessons I don't think are that hard to learn. What is hard is to unlearn the conditioning that we've undergone in this white supremacist capitalist, all the ists and ism systems, right? And, and so in terms of land, you know, just one, one other thing in terms of land, I should say, um, there are a lot of urban farms that have popped up. And I'm, I'm really happy that people who even four or five years ago said, what? You want me to do slave work? Like, whoa, if you work in this country, you're doing slave work because slave people did everything first and foremost. That's right. North, South, and uh, east, <laughs> and then in actually west too, and yep. actually west too. So, so first of all, so let's put that part aside. If you drive a car, you're doing slave work because guess what? Black people drove white folks places, right? They had horses, but anyway, all right. Sorry for that tangent. But uh, <laughs> so, so once we get past that part, we can talk about how we could t- two things. One, when we are actively involved in producing our own food, even if it's just a small portion of it, our relationship to the land changes, our relationship to ourselves change and our relationship to the natural environment more largely, thinking more largely, because you have to think about water, you have to think about pests, you have to think about all these things, it changes. And one of the beautiful changes that happens is people start to have more confidence in their ability to be self-reliant. Exactly. You know, again, even if it's just I'm growing some herbs in my windowsill, now I'm not having to pay somebody else exorbitant prices for those same herbs. And the other thing that happens is when people, a lot of these farms, uh, and I think this is a beautiful strategy, are created in abandoned lots. And as soon as the capitalists see (laughs) that, you know, the land is being put to good use for the people who they seek to control, they swoop in and try to take it. And they have the backing of, of expensive lawyers, cities, all types of things. And, and that teaches people who just started developing their own confidence in their self-sufficiency and self-reliance that, oh, these people who said that the problem is me because I don't work hard enough. Now I'm working hard and I'm feeding myself and they're still telling me I'm a problem. Exactly. Right. And so. If, if land didn't matter, those types of things wouldn't happen. And we could just grow food and be merry and nobody would care. And, and so I think that there's a lot of power in thinking, not, not just thinking, but, but gaining access to and producing upon land, at least in those ways. No, definitely. I, I like I like that you went into the, the issue of the narrative and how there's always this this, this effort to say that the, the struggle for black liberation is more so a self-inflicted problem, that there's something wrong with us is the narrative that comes out of the upper classes and from the white supremacists that 
regardless of whatever solution or intervention that we develop in terms of self-sufficiency, and this is, and again, this is like you said, you brought up Fannie Hamer, you bring up that, that, that golden age of black intellectual tradition from the mid 1960s to around 1988, when all of these books were doing intersectional work without calling it intersectionality. Yeah. They yeah. were actually looking at liberation and the material realities of black people trying to develop visions of struggle. One of the things they often sought to do was to change the narrative that there is a structural component that's in dialectical relationship to how we struggle and yeah. we build resistance. And I think that that's one of the biggest cornerstones in what's cool about your book, Free to Land, is that you pay very close attention to the development of the solution and how people really came to be that if the only means to our liberation is to free the land, literally, that we're going to have to have these resources to yeah. be able, like I said, it's the connective tissue. We need resources to develop our self-sufficiency and agency for be, to, to live our lives the way we should want to live them, like any sovereign people should, right? And so when you look back on the things that you went into, and again, you went into a lot of the hip hop, particularly in that early 90s period, that was put, producing some of the really great criticisms of not just capital, but the American culture in general, which of course, as we've seen, you know, spoiler alert, it has mutated to the stuff that it is today to where if you're going to find some really conscious critical hip-hop, not the conscious commercial hip-hop yeah. that still yeah. is on that foolishness, you have to dig so deep that because it's getting buried. So yeah. in terms of your research for Free to Land, how did you approach your methodology in, in crafting your narrative? Because as you mentioned, you want you always... And those of us that are scholar activists organizers, we always want to seek to change the narrative away from the dominant oppressive one. So how did you take that into account when you chose your methodology for your research? How did you go about that? Yeah, so I, I began with, I guess, the, the well-worn phrase at this point, the personal is political. And really thinking about what that means, not in a hyper individualistic way, which is, a, which is what I think many of us want to just automatically jump to like, oh, I, I recycled, right? That's what people say now. <laughs> and, and instead thinking about what does it mean as an individual person to try to participate in a revolutionary movement. And, and so that really is at the heart of it. And, you know, as, as I talk about in the book, uh, there's this concept, lifestyle politics, which I, I borrowed and, and I like, I guess I kind of evolved from another scholar, but um, that's one way that I think about it. And, and the way that I actually learned about how it operated in the new African independence movement was, I, I I was about to talk about all the sources, all the, the yeah. archives I visited, all the documents I looked at. And some of that's important, right? One of them being Safiya Bukhari's, uh, I guess, mini autobiography, where she talks about why she became a Black Panther and why she got into the Black Liberation Army and those types of things. But, but what really 
helped me get at it was talking to people, right? Doing the interviews, getting to know folks like Marilyn Preston Killingham, who told me when she was a, a girl, her goal in life was to get married and have children. And then when she started, but she always was rebellious and part of her rebellious spirit was, well, I don't wanna just do that. That's not my only goal. My goal is also to be a business leader, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and, you know, going from that to being a mentor to students in the Revolutionary Action Movement and becoming a lifelong conscious citizen of the Republic of New Africa. And so, you know, how do you get at that? You got to talk to people because even, even those who did write down their life stories, such as Imari Obadeli, Herman Ferguson, and now um, uh, Mama Kenyama, uh, Tamu Kenyama, you know, who, who write down portions of their life story, talking to folks just get, gets us so much more. You know, you can ask the questions, you can, you can, for lack of a better word, you can feel and sense what you can't just read on paper. And the good thing about talking to people is you don't just ask a question and read, read, read. You ask a question, they talk, and then they ask a question back. Right. Yep. <laughs> and they push back and they challenge and they they change their mind and, and rephrase it or contradict it or whatever it is. And so um, really, that that's at the heart of the research. I did the traditional historical method of visiting the archives. I looked at the documents. I looked at newspapers. You know, I looked at New African independence movement resources. I Many, right, the best ones I got actually weren't in archives. They were in people's personal collections. That's always That's important the case. To say. Yeah. That's important to say. Yeah. Um, but, and, and I also looked at things like FBI documents, as heavily redacted as they are. Oh, yeah. As untrustworthy as they can be, police and FBI files, they at least help corroborate. And yeah. sometimes you can get documents that they stole from people <laughs> that they That's don't right. even have, right? <laughs> so, um, you, you know, at the heart of at the heart of everything is is I really wanted to understand the lived experience of being a revolutionary activist. And at the end of the day, I had the, these mixed methods. Uh, the, the final thing that I didn't say was I became a participant observer in many new African and specifically PGRNA events such as New African Nation Day and just going to the other functions that they had um, that were open to the public. Yeah, I mean, what's fascinating to me about your method is typically, even when you look at radical Black scholarship, there's not as much, I mean, again, I'm, I'm being more general. This isn't, I'm not trying to totalize everything, but typically, there is a focus on the black working classes and their experiences as being oppressed and, you know, in the spaces. And you may have some activism here or there. But what you do that's so different is exactly what you said in that. What is the day to day life of somebody who's involved in a movement? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's one of the most extraordinary things that you never see on a grand scale, maybe in one or two other books. Most of them coming out from the 70s or 80s, but nothing recent. So what you're doing is so important because one of the things we emphasize on Off the Shelf 
is that the biggest omission to the current protest moment is people do not conceptualize nor have been taught nor have had the experience of a day-to-day life of being in a movement for a liberational purpose. Like they just, it just doesn't exist. And so by you crafting that and showing the difficulties, the struggles, like this isn't something you just get. It's not that I have a dream and you get a civil rights bill, 64, that they like to put out on Lifetime or A&E or whatever. This is like a real depiction of wins and losses, struggle, struggle, ideological issues, internal, external, mobilized. All all encompassing in what takes to fight for liberation. And I think that that's what's so critical now is that we need an honest depiction of what happens in struggle and to take honest strategies, genuine tactics and critique them for both good and bad to look at what can apply today. And I think your book lays out a lot of really cool examples of that. That again, other scholars like myself will be doing when I'm writing my works as well. So your methodology influences me as it influences others who are trying to do this work as well. And the last thing I want to get into is exactly what you said a second ago about you becoming a participant as a scholar, but also as an organizer as well. So can you talk more about your experiences and that and how both inform the other? Like, how did you get into that dialectic mindset and action-wise when you were doing this work? Yeah, you know, I think it's important to just be honest. You know, I became a historian and was eventually drawn to this work because I was trying to figure out how to be an activist. You know, that's really... it. it sometimes people get surprised when I say that, but no, that was my mindset. I... I was listening to things like, okay, well, I can't just do nothing. What exactly. can I do? <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and so that part of that, that intellectual journey was also me trying out different student groups, getting with, you know, we talked about Urbana Champagne a little bit before this started, meeting some of the local activists and getting to know them and trying to participate in some of what they were doing, joining not-for-profits and volunteering, and always coming back to the realization that, you know, not, and this is not to belittle anyone or to disrespect or disregard what they're doing, because all of these folks are doing very important work. Sure. But all of it is very limited in that it doesn't ask people to question the very, at the most basic level, what are we doing here? Why? And what does it actually mean to be a citizen? Exactly. Right. Which I ask, which I'll ask anybody. I ask, I ask you know, I'm, I'm in the, the classroom. And I ask my students. I was like, yo, when did you decide? What's it mean to be a citizen? When did you decide to be one? And they're like, what? I was born one. I said, that's not my question. When did you decide? When did you exactly. give your consent to be governed? With all the rights and responsibilities. And, and that's not something that I think we're supposed to think about. <laughs> yeah, no, you're so and, right. <laughs> and so because this movement has that as one of the foundational premises, I was drawn to it. Um, and again, just to be honest, 
so yeah, I'm, I'm an organizing member of Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. I had no clue at first that it was a part of the, the legacy of the New African Independence Movement. I heard about it when I was listening to uh, Jared Balls. It was called Vox Union back then, like 2005, 2006. And he, he, it was Black August, my first time learning about Black August resistance. And one of the segments on the show talked about MXGM's Black August hip hop concerts. I was like, what? Revolutionaries? Hip hop? I got to be a part of this. What is this? <laughs> Political prisoners? <laughs> you know, and, and so, um, you, you know, so the participation part is, is probably more complex than it might appear on the surface because I was drawn to the research as an intellectual and as someone who's trying to be an activist, but still, you know, trying to raise questions, trying to figure out what all is going on, trying to maintain a little bit of objective distance. All those things that I think that responsible people should strive to do as much as possible. At the same time, I'm really drawn to this grassroots organizing that's happening where they're talking about a lot of the same things. I didn't know that they were saying free the land and new African right, at first, but they were talking about land. They're mm -hmm. talking about political prisoners and cop watch, you know, stuff I learned about in Sh uh, Champaign-Urbana. And I, find, I, I realized after I decided I wanted to figure out what MXGM was, that the two were intertwined. That's because I interviewed uh, uh, um, Chokwe Lumumba, who then told me about it. I was like, oh, I did not know. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And so um, that is how I got involved. The participant observation was distinct. The participant observation for the research was me participating in provisional government functions and, and sometimes officials, sometimes people within the PG, so kind of unofficial and getting to know basically the elders and getting to understand the culture that people were keeping alive that had originated in that 1968 founding moment. Um, now, you know, just where everything is, I, I think, how do I, I, I think that there's a lot more overlap than maybe I want to admit to, I guess, I don't know. Um, but for me, that was, and I was honest with the elders, like, look, this is for research, but I'm also just interested in learning because, you know, I'm trying to be out here doing stuff. And even if it's not within the PG, then, you know, what can me and my peers learn from you all that we can then take and be effective, right? And so, yeah, it's a big old mishmash, a confusing mess of stuff. So <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I, I got to your, your question. I think I kind of took it a little different direction for a second. No, no, definitely. This is, that's, that's, that's what matters, though, again, because a lot of what you, for, 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 the, for the work you're doing in terms of the, the work on the ground, and the work in terms of doing the research, the writing, et cetera, my, my argument is that you can't separate the two, that both are going to inform one another. Yeah. And they're both going to be critical pieces to developing a vision for Black liberation. And we must always remember that. And that's why I appreciate the way you put that there. And so really the last big question I have for you is with your book, Free to Land, where does an argument of new African independence or the new African people's movement, 
Where does that fit currently now in this protest moment? You know, of course, yeah. as people know by now, a lot of what's been happening now has been turned on, on a, in a complete 180. Yeah. A lot of the, because of, again, if you want to listen to some of my past shows on Off the Shelf, and we talked about this, but the state now is reacting in a very oppressive manner, pushing more money towards policing, trying to manipulate the numbers to show that crime, quote unquote, is on the rise. Yeah. When all this talk about what I call depowering the police state, when, I, when, that, when that's going on and people are questioning the role of police or the function or the very existence of it, now the state is reacting in this way. Mm-hmm. A lot of the protest moment has moved from the streets to, well, let's invest in nonprofits only. Yeah. So, again, where does the freedom land work as an intellectual source and also an organizing tool? Where does it fit in the moment we are in now and how can we best use it moving forward? That's a big question. <laughs> well, you know, again, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll start with what you mentioned earlier about, you know, oftentimes we're not taught about the day to day in the life of revolutionary activists. And again, as someone who's trying to figure out, that was a question that I wanted to ask. And it's something that I think that we all can ask as people get into protest, as they get into supporting organizations, whether they be grassroots or not-for-profit, they also need to think about the real, very real stakes of participation, Yes, which is not just, you know, you get involved, you have a good time, you know, you, you have that moment where you run from the police for a sec, then you and your, your <laughs> friends can talk about it later, you know, a little <laughs> yeah. bit of trauma, but also a lot of excitement, right? Yeah. Um, no, instead, no, they're coming for you. They're coming yes. for you. I mean, it's just that's just what it is. But for the reasons that you said, they, they one of the things that we can learn from studying this history is that whether they be I the, the uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in his I have it only the second half of I have it. They never talk about the first half of the I have a dream speech. Never. But <laughs> the second half of the I have a dream speech version of Martin Luther King, or whether it be Malcolm X, whether it be Fannie Lou Hamer whoever else it is, whether it be Asada Shakur and Safiya Bakari and the Black Liberation Army, all of them had the same fate, which is what the state came for them. They tried to buy them at certain points. They tried to turn them into snitches at certain points. They tried to kill them and they, they did kill some of them and they imprisoned the rest of them, right? Um, at, at varying moments. And so, you know, we, we have to first understand that this is dangerous work it's dangerous work exactly. and anyone who doesn't feel a little bit of fear i'm just like oh you might be an adventurous maybe this, maybe you should really rethink your commitments but maybe at the same time free to land <laughs> yeah <laughs> at the same time though we shouldn't be paralyzed by it right we shouldn't we we should understand we should do enough research and surround ourselves with enough reliable elders to know when we're being bought, because it's not always going to be clear. And I think especially for more inexperienced people who haven't had the opportunity, right? I'm, I'm privileged. I'm able to do this research and devote my life to it, right? So for those who aren't, surround yourself with people who can help you see what is coming down the pipe, because they, they'll tell you 10 steps out. This is what's about to happen. If, but you have to be willing to ask and you have to be willing to listen. 
right? And myself included, right? I'm not saying this is somebody who has it all figured out. I'm, I'm always, I'm still learning yeah, from experiencing from the elders. And so um, even if you are operating within a not-for-profit, right? I've done that and I will probably do it again. Just understand that you're there for particular reasons. So, exactly. and if, and if the money, if you're trying to, uh, you said disempower the police or is that what you depower the depower police, the police, the state. police state. Oh, depower the police. State. That, that was oh, my big gonna... criticism when the whole yeah. defund the police thing started. And I would call them in and say, you want to talk more about the power analysis because again, New Jersey, they defunded their entire police and create a whole new police force yeah, so, at yeah, the county level. Really That's what I'm saying. Fun, Depower the police yeah, state. You got to exactly. accomplish the whole apparatus and ask those difficult questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so as those types of things are happening, as it looks like you're starting to have some wins, be one of the things that that I can learn because they face a lot of repression. Was okay. Now we know some of the tricks. Now we can start to plan for some potential outcomes. And how to always be ready with the next thing instead of, oh, they took us by surprise. They don't change. They don't change anything. Exactly. They change some of the specific tools. They might change the shoelaces on the shoe. Exactly. But they're doing all the same things ultimately. And and once we realize that and we we keep in mind that this is we're not going to be rewarded for this work ever if we're doing it right. We're not going to be rewarded. Once we understand that, I think we can get past some of what paralyzes, causes conflict, and permits or or entices some people to leave and do the easier things um, instead of really trying to understand clearly what the goals are and, and how any decision we make either takes us toward the goal or takes us away from the goal. And really it's that simple. I typically am not a black and white type person because I'm like, oh, there's so much nuance. But when it comes to these types of things, we're either working toward the goal or we're working against the goal. That's just what it is. Exactly. That's, and that kind of really sums up what Off the Shelf is about, is that we want to always work towards the goal. And we're talking to scholars like scholar organizers like you, we, we, we want to make sure that it's clear that people can critique what's happening to understand what the goal should be in terms of building your vision for liberation. Mm-hmm. That has to be at the heart of it. And I think that you do a great job of that, not only in the book, but also as somebody who works alongside you and you do the same thing in your work. So again, this, is, this has been a very important discussion and really kind of a precursor because the real richness of the history that informs a lot of this discussion we're having is in Free the Land. That book is going to be a very important tool that we use over the next 10 to 15 years. And then hopefully it remains important, for lack of a term, relic, that is often, as the struggle continues for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, yeah. it becomes that framework like, okay, this is what they were doing then. We got to be able to use these things then and now. So that yeah. informs a lot of this discussion. And so I want to thank you again, good brother, for coming on the show and just laying it down and just like a really, really connecting this understanding of the intellectual 
rigor with the experiences of organizing, being a participant in movement action, and why those things are so important to do together, and also the element of land and why that must be a central focus of resource reallocation in our struggle for liberation. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much uh, for, for doing the show, for doing all of the work you do. And, you know, I, I look forward to continuing to have th these conversations and to developing work around what we learn as, as we grow and evolve. Exactly. And so, again, listeners, we were just joined by Associate Professor Edward Onachi and his book, Free the Land, is out. It is a tool that we must use for developing our resources, political education. Hopefully, we're going to be able to have him back on for a future episode as well of Off the Shelf. But again, you've been listening to Off the Shelf Revolutionary Readings in Times of Crises sponsored by the Humanities Research Institute at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I'm your host, Gus Wood, and see you all later. Always power to the people. And as we often say, free the land. By any take means care, necessary. By any means necessary.